Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Do you know what? I have to say I'm actually, I am good, okay? And for everyone who's been listening over the past couple of weeks, I know you've all heard me complaining about uni work. I know you've heard me saying that I'm getting stressed and I'm trying to enjoy Christmas. Today, I am submitting my accounting assignment. It's done. I've only got one economics assignment to do. And then, like, I truly feel like this Christmas is going to be so sweet because I will have so much weight off my shoulders. Nice. That's good to hear because it's been quite stressful for you. So congratulations. One assignment to go. I know. It's, it's a good feeling. I feel like as well, I know I've said this before, but... I haven't studied anything since 2012. <laughs> Do you know, that's when I graduated. So it's been just an adjustment in that regard, getting used to it. Anyway, it's taken up too much airtime already, but I just wanted to say that is why I'm in a particularly good mood. I put up my Christmas tree and I'm submitting one of the two assignments I have due. So how's your week been? Oh, I'm good. I'm preparing for my holidays. So whew, I'm Where ready. I'm going to Senegal, so I'm ready for the sun. Nice. When do you fly? On the weekend. So I'm having a very good week. And will you be traveling around there or are you just staying with your husband's family? Oh, no, we're staying in our own place. I'll be seeing my husband's family. Fab. Can't wait. Party. And this will have been your only holiday this year, right? Yeah. So I'm going large. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going so large. I'm going to ruin everybody's Christmas. Anyone that follows me. On Instagram, your Christmas is going to be demolished because I'm going hard. How long are you out there for? For a month. Oh my God, fab. So literally full Christmas everything. Yep. Oh my God, really nice. That'll be so lovely. Yep. What a good feeling as well, because it's like, I feel as though we very much so, and obviously we spent the majority of this year recording from home, um, but You know, I think I feel at the beginning of lockdown, everyone was like, make sure to prioritize your mental health. Like, we don't know what kind of toll this is taking. And now the attitude has really shifted to, um, well, it's November, so you must be used to it by now. Whereas I feel like this is the point at which people's mental fortitude is really starting to lag. Of course. I think, um, I mean, there's some optimism because, you know, vaccines will be going Mm -hmm. to market. So, there is a sense of it could be over soon. And I think that's positive. But if you do anything for a long time, it's stressful. Everyone's circumstance is different. And I am absolutely in need of a break. Mm -hmm. So that's why ideally we wouldn't want to fly. But it's at the point where when are we going to see our relatives? We better Mm -hmm. take the chance and see them now. And so I'm in in need of a break for sure mm-hmm. and the Christmas drip is going to be <laughs> impeccable so I'm super excited but I'm also very excited about this episode because this is our crown special our listeners asked and we listened and we are about to deliver and you know I never ever need an excuse to talk about the royals yeah I actually had this conversation with my husband the other day when I was saying I don't even think that I'm a royalist anymore, but I am so deeply fascinated with them and with their lives and with all of them. I like the Nordic royals. I like the Spanish royals. I'm just, you know, I'm keeping my, I'm dipping a toe in all of them. 
Okay, you're super into it. I wouldn't say I'm that into it, but I think people are fascinated because if you think about the hereditary principle and the fact that you are born into this position, Mm -hmm. you are at the very pinnacle of society when it comes to status, but then you're just a broken, trash human being like everybody else. I think that's what keeps pulling people in, especially when it comes to the British royal family. I totally agree because obviously this season of The Crown was particularly explosive because it's when we properly got introduced to Diana. Thank God, because last season was so boring. Season one and season two were absolute masterpieces, complete, epic, everything stunning. Season three, I started to get a bit concerned about Olivia Coleman. I just did I don't know what went wrong but it was so slow it was so dull it was so boring there are only a couple of things I remember and I think it's such a metaphor for the royal family in general like when Diana came on the scene it was just refresh 100% and I I really agree with you as well about Olivia Coleman now there was something that I was reading because a lot of critique was like well they didn't do Anne's kidnapping attempt they didn't do yada 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 And Peter Morgan, who is the producer, basically said, or the writer, I suppose you... you Well, creator. Yeah, thank you. That's probably the best word that I was looking for. Was like, we try to tell stories that directly relate to the crown. So when other characters or other individuals have kind of spin-off storylines, unless we can tie it back specifically to the crown and the queen, we have to do a kind of a shortened version, which is why you don't see some of those bigger storylines. But I feel like the gloves came off in this season in a serious way. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And I think what they did really well is that they were able to incorporate other people's stories. Yes, there was that intersection with the Queen. But I think what I noticed this season was that everybody got some airtime. Right. So you had that focus on Princess Margaret. You had that focus on Princess Anne. You had obviously the focus on Prince Charles and Princess Diana and it just kept the tempo like it kept it really interesting every episode was exciting I don't know if I need to get out more but for me every episode to the point where we had to watch like a couple of episodes at a time because we became overwhelmed oh my gosh absolutely the same here Midway through the season, my sister and I discovered Netflix Party, which is essentially a a Zoom call, I guess, where you share your screen and you guys watch the show in tandem with one another. And afterwards, we were both like, okay, well, I don't think we can do that again because we were just so, oh my God, oh my God, like tapping frantically in the corner of the screen. I really don't know where to start, but I guess as good a point as any is the Charles Diana storyline that you mentioned. And I think one thing that really stood out to me, because, you know, you mentioned getting so caught up in it, so engrossed, neither of us were really alive in a meaningful way during the realm of Diana, right? We weren't alive for the wedding. I was five or six when she died. And you've still got this huge legacy where she, I actually, I actually have, a Charles and Diana plate in my kitchen from their wedding. So it's like one of those things where that legacy lives on in a meaningful way, even for those of us who didn't actually grow up with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was alive when Princess Diana died. I was in primary school. And I remember, because I live in West London, we went to Kensington Gardens and like they took some kids to Kensington Gardens and then we lit some candles in a vigil for Princess Diana. And so 
when you're that young, you think everyone that's an adult is old. So I thought Princess Diana was in her 40s at least because I'm like, she's a princess and she's old. But then watching The Crown, you realise how young she was when she married Prince Charles. And then you realise how young she was when she passed away. I did not realise how young she was when she passed away. And also that she had given so much of her life, like basically to The Crown. I'm sorry, but I really do feel like a lot must have gone on behind the scenes to keep that 12-year age gap a secret because... No, wow. that's, 12 years is not a big deal. 12 years is a pretty big deal when it's a 32-year-old marrying a 20-year-old. No, not not really. 12 years is absolutely not. I think 20-year-olds are children still. I was things have changed. No, I think things no. have really changed with our generation. People are now marrying a lot closer to their age. But 12 years was very standard. Perhaps it was standard. I definitely don't think that you are entering into the same level of maturity. I was sitting across the table from, I hate fucking saying this, my husband, <laughs> of course. How many times, we play like bingo, see how many times I mentioned my husband per episode. Anyway, he's 32. And I was like, the idea that you would be with a 20-year-old, it's so obviously mismatched. Like, you think about 20-year-olds not even necessarily graduated from uni. Like, But the function of relationships has completely changed Mm -hmm. right so prior to let's say the millennial generation the function of the relationship was to have a family so you were now as a man at the age where you were ready to settle down and find a wife and the woman that you were marrying was probably just finished school and ready to have kids and be a homemaker that was the function of the relationship whereas now the millennial relationship the ideal relationship is partnership power couple etc that is completely new 12 years that's nothing I actually do agree with you and I think you make a good point there but I think that what kind of counteracts that point is the fact that Camilla is a year older than Charles so it would be one thing if he was just like you know what I've got a predilection for younger girls that would be gross and I felt it was gross as I said it but you'd be like as you said, a sign of the times, this is just how men operated. But very clearly... Society, how society... society operated. Yeah. But he always wanted to be with someone his age. And mm-hmm. I feel that what really came across in this particular season was not not that he only chose Diana because she was young and she you know, was ready to have children, basically. But he thought, well, this is someone that will be easily controlled. So I'll just continue doing my thing with my with my partner, to use your word, my partner, Camilla, who is my age, and this girl who is 12 slash 13 years younger than us both will just be kind of left to her own devices. Exactly. And that was the real misjudgment. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought she's young, she's naive, she'll be in the shadows, and she showed them. And I think that was the real miscalculation that everybody made. And I think, um, so obviously you have the crown and what's happened on Netflix now is that all of these documentaries about Princess Diana are now trending. And so my husband and I have watched a couple of like YouTube documentaries from like experts on the royal family, right? And somebody was saying that Camilla was never an option 
because her looks were not up to it. Her lineage was not up to it. You know, and she was too old in the sense that she was mature. She'd already had relationships by this point, And that was not the kind of woman that they thought would be fit to be the Princess of Wales. That's such a good point. And it's one of those things as well where that also blew up in their face. Because, again, you've got to take the crown with a pinch of salt. I'm sure not every conversation happens as they depict. But when Margaret pointed out, we have to stop telling people who they can and can't marry. I thought that that was very meaningful, considering that she had been stopped from marrying who she wanted to. And then she had that catastrophic marriage to Earl Snowden. Years ago, I remember reading a thing when you talk about Diana's lineage, that basically the Spencer lineage was purer than the royal families. And someone had said, you know, the worst thing that Diana ever did was marrying below her class. Mm. Which I really do feel like the rug has been pulled out from under the royal family with this season because there's been some heavy propaganda going on, some heavy PR over the past 20 years to really make Charles and Diana this really beautiful love story. Yeah, and watching it, so like you said, because we didn't, you know, we weren't really of age at the time to understand all these nuances. And then you watch it and you're like, hey, it was basically an arranged marriage they didn't really know each other. They didn't really get to spend time together. Like Prince Charles was out here doing him. Then he came, got married, and then moved his new wife 15 minutes away from his mistress. And I didn't know that. Like, and everyone said, everyone said, oh, wow, like you didn't know that. No, I did not know that this guy moved Princess Diana 15 minutes away from Camilla and her husband. And everyone was just letting it happen. And everyone let it happen. Yeah. What on earth? I think what. But did you know that? I did. Oh, God, I didn't know that. I knew that he was having. I knew about Tampon Gate, right? I knew about that whole thing. But I guess in the way that you just know that they were having the affair. No, but we were shocked because he didn't give it like, oh, let me try with my marriage for six months. Let me try for a year. There was no, there was no no break. Totally. And that's like in the same way that you said, you know, when you're young, everyone who is grown up is old. I knew kind of quote unquote in theory, oh, yeah, well, he had an affair because I knew about the whole there were three of us in this marriage interview that Diana had done. But I think it's not until you're older that you think, wait, that's actually to talk so openly about your affair is one thing. It was only this season that I realized how quickly the affair started up again. And then you just think, there's absolutely nothing redeemable about this whatsoever. Like, you really just ruined that girl's life. Absolutely. And I think what was really apparent with The Crown this season is that Diana was the other woman. It's not Camilla that was the other woman. Diana was the other woman. That's such a good way of putting it. Did you feel that there were the same parallels between Diana and Megan? Now, when I say that, I don't mean in the sense, obviously, that there was an affair ongoing. But what you really saw throughout this whole kind of system and this storyline of Diana, not only is her husband having an affair, but everybody knows about it and everybody is upholding it. Their neighbours and their acquaintances are all facilitating the affair. They're being like, use our house. You can just go to our house this weekend. Don't worry. His secretary is facilitating it his staff, her staff, you know, she's being spied on. And I just thought in that first 
episode when she was just left on her own or in those first couple of episodes excuse me when Charles had gone away for the six weeks in the lead up to their marriage and she was just trying to call him and trying to call the queen again I know that some of this is hyperbolic but it really does show that sometimes the people who work for the institution are the most interested in upholding the institution Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, if you work for the institution, you must uphold the institution. I think that's a given. Where I see a parallel between Princess Diana and Meghan Markle was the fact that outside of the UK, because I don't think that the British public were fond of Meghan, but Meghan was educated. Meghan was beautiful, popular. And I think this was very jarring for the royal family in the way that Princess Diana was such a superstar and watching The Crown season four, you realise how much of a superstar Diana was. Those young superstars that are changing the world and you have this really bad feeling that something is going to happen to them because they're ahead of their time or they're just not of this world. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I feel about Princess Diana, obviously way more of a star than Meghan Markle. But I think Meghan sort of coming in, being different, being beautiful, being popular, it was just too much for the royal family. I really agree with that. And I think that one of the things that really came across to me again is a kind of a realisation where actually we are obsessed with the the pomp and circumstance right and the kind of the flag waving and the rule britannia kind of aspect of the royals but none of them do anything and that's what really came across very clearly to me in this season is that peter morgan was kind of saying listen let's lift the veil a little bit because the royal family generate a huge amount of income for the British economy, but they also cost a lot. So proportionally, they cost more than every other European royal family, but they also generate more income. So does that make sense? Essentially, it works out as almost breaking even. But you do think, wow, it would be nice to see a little bit more activity from them. And that's what Diana did so well. She was on the ground. She was working with charities. She was patron of over 100 charities. And they were seeing her all the time. And you cannot say the same thing for our current royals. Mm. Because Princess Diana was so lonely, like her life was very awful. Mm. (laughs) After that, I was like, wow, her life really sucks. You know, the Crown team did such a great job of showing what Princess Diana was going through in regards to her eating disorder And the fact that she was quite isolated and she was quite lonely. And when you are that isolated and you're that lonely, I feel like she needed the public affection as much as the public were inspired by her and were needed by her. She also gained so much from it was just like a mutual affection. Mm -hmm. And there's a meme that was going around on Instagram and it was saying, oh, what feels like slavery but isn't? And then the answer was unpaid internships. And then one of them was what feels black but isn't. And it was a picture of Princess Diana. And people don't realise, I don't know if British people realise how much like the Commonwealth 
or people that are not from England loved Princess Diana. And I think when she went on that trip to New York and it just showed how every single person felt like they could not, that they could relate to her, but there wasn't this barrier. And I think they set it up so well in The Crown at the beginning because they were going out to like do a meet and greet and they were all like, okay, gloves on. And they had like no interest Mm -hmm. in their subjects. Yes. Right. And Princess Diana would ask questions and did have an interest in human beings. And they mocked her for it. They mm-hmm. they just felt like, oh, this is completely disingenuous. Like, how could you care about the regular person? The way I feel about it is this. I think that the royal family, any royal family, but specifically the British royal family is a business. And there's nothing about them that really makes me think, oh, a family in the stereotypical way that you and I might define family they're a business and they are not being run as a business because anytime anyone's like hey I want to set up an innovation arm I've got some new strategic plans for the coming fiscal year they're like no we're actually going to use 1950s plan again (laughs) we're just going to recycle 1950s plan but thank you for your time your p45 is actually on your desk they did it with Diana they did it with Harry and they did it with Meghan That is so true. When you think about it, it is a business and they just continue to make poor business decisions. But the challenge we have is that even though they're making poor decisions under Queen Elizabeth II, once Queen Elizabeth II goes, it's going to be a free fall. Like it's going to be even worse. At least she's holding on to the 1950s plan with Mm -hmm. her bare hands. But once she goes, there is no plan. Oh, the stock is going to plummet. <laughs> Lehman it's Brothers. Over. It's over. Um, it's Lehman Brothers. It's over. And it was so shocking watching the crowd. And then you think, wow. So Prince Charles dedicated his whole life to marrying Camilla. This was his life mission. Right? How does that work? Imagine actually having ambition. My husband was like, I've never seen a love like this. <laughs> He said, this is not love. This is like a mental health issue. And what I think after, you know, watching it is that he has so much resentment towards the crown that I think that this is the one thing that he knows the queen hates, but he can stick it to her now. (laughs) And he's sticking it to her with Camilla at his side as queen. One million percent. And you know what I find is so ironic about it? No one wanted Elizabeth to marry Philip, but she was like, no, I I am marrying him. Like, I've decided it is happening. And Philip had to abdicate from the Greek throne in order to be able to marry Elizabeth. Like, she was like, no, I've decided, and this is what will take place. And then when anybody else tries to say, oh, listen, actually, mummy, I'd like to marry Camilla, it's like, I've checked. The answer's no. Yeah, but I think it's a bit different because, and I don't know the details around the Queen and Prince Philip, but the Camilla situation, and given the fact that Prince Charles is the future king, I could th- I could see why they would think, oh, he would grow out of it and there are other options. Like you said, if the Spencer line is so elite mm-hmm. and Diana was just such a great, option I could see why they would be tempted by that because I don't see what's appealing about Camilla I would think oh he'll get over that 
Yes, I actually, I actually have to say I agree with you, and I also think what's so strange—it's a, it's a business, right? Like mm. you said, and marrying into the Spencer family made good business sense. That's a good M and A transaction, right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's so bizarre, right? And this is how heavily I've absorbed the propaganda of this Charles Camilla love story. It was only my mum actually said it to me during the week, mixing it up from my husband. My mum was like, it must be really difficult for William and Harry to be around the woman that their father cheated on their mother with for the entirety of their marriage. Like the pairing of Charles and Camilla made Diana's life a misery. And now you've all just got to sit around the table with one another Mm. at those business meetings because there aren't family dinners. Well... I, you know, the crown for us as a public was really shocking or just sad. But I have a feeling that there's a lot more that went on that obviously we are not privy to. So Mm -hmm. I think that it was even worse for Diana than what we saw in the crown. And so the kids might not even know the full extent and the full story. And then after you lose a parent, you just think, okay, you know, I want my dad to be happy. That's true. That is a good point. I think that what's really come to light as well is you've got your Gen Z's now learning about Diana basically for the first time. So I don't know if you saw this, but on the Clarence House Instagram, the Gen Z were there commenting on all of these posts about Camilla and her charity work saying we love Diana Diana the true people's princess which you know shouldn't have cracked me up but it really did and then they disabled their comments wow mm-hmm. they disabled their comments having said for two years when racist comments were being left on Sussex Royal and Kensington Royal's Instagram about Meghan Markle. It wasn't the Crown's policy to do that. But I guess it's quite all right to do that when you aren't a biracial actress who's married in. Wow, that is so interesting. I'm pro-Meghan, obviously, and that's been discussed on this podcast. And I feel as though sometimes there's the danger that if you talk about Kate Middleton then, and you say that you're a Meghan fan, it's obvious that you're going to slam Kate Middleton. And that's not my intention just for the sake of it. But I do think that the bar is on the absolute floor. And I don't want to take up too much time in that today. But I could literally talk about her early years initiative for the rest of this podcast, because I've never seen something so farcical in my life. And you've got the media tripping over themselves to praise her for her incredible work when what's happened is that she's supposedly spent eight years on this project so that she could release a five-question survey at the beginning of this year. I spoke to a friend of mine who actually works in developmental psychology, and she said that those questions that Kate Middleton released would be the questions that you ask before the questions before you ask the questions. So they're so basic, they can't actually tell you anything. And when Kate then released the quote-unquote results of her finding this week, it turned out that she had had to borrow from somebody else's research paper because her own research has provided absolutely no information whatsoever. And I just think Diana would never. 
true, but Kate will be queen. Yes. Kate plays her position on the 1950s plan really well. Correct, actually. She will survive in that system and she will be queen. And I think that's what she's focusing on. And so it's really about understanding what's the person's goal. And we're obviously being a bit lighthearted, being like, oh, it's the 1950s plan. But when you think about today's day and age, and when I say that Diana was ahead of her time, we're now in an era of authenticity. You don't need to be 100% authentic, but people need to feel that they could relate to you in some way. And that's why I think Kate's approach and our royal family's approach in general, like the stiff upper lip approach, I just don't think it's a long-term strategy. Mate, strategy is the word. Like, I'm so sorry. This is the mentality you need to have. You need to be judging up your image. And that's just a fact. Yeah. But it is sad when you think about sort of when Diana started to be introduced as the potential wife of Charles. And then she goes into like the royal family and then they're kind of like making fun of her because she doesn't know who to curtsy to. And she doesn't know the royal protocol. And you think, wow, that's what they did to a white British aristocrat. What was going on with Meghan behind closed doors where they literally had to dip from the royal family? They said, please take our titles, take everything. We're going to LA, we're done. Right, right. And I do feel that this season has been the wake up call for a lot of people in that regard, because you've got people who are so entrenched in hate that when Meghan Markle released an opinion piece for the New York Times this week, saying that she had had a miscarriage, you've got people saying she's making it up for attention. Hmm. Are you literally unwell? Hmm. So that's what people did to Diana, like, oh, you're pretending to care about the regular person. Mm -hmm. If you think about everything we've discovered around the crown, Being in the British royal family, you know, it's a toxic situation. And in order for you to survive, you probably have to self-medicate, cheat. It's tough to survive that environment. I think you really have to be desensitised. Yes. To survive in that environment. So when you do look at someone like Meghan talking openly about her miscarriage, I think you look at that and say, oh, she's doing that for the gram. I agree because... You have to be cynical. You have to be cynical. And also what popped into my head when you were saying that there is a phrase that we use a lot on the podcast, scarcity mindset. And the royal family have scarcity mindset. Because otherwise, if you had an ounce of political or societal savvy, right, you would be Kate Middleton, who has adopted early years, intervention, children, mothers, pregnancy, all of this kind of stuff as one of your key causes. And you would say, look, my sister-in-law experienced this. So we've decided to do X, Y, Z together because I am going to now cut off any kind of talk of you pitting us against one another. And I'm going to leverage all of the headlines that we'll get when it's two of us collaborating on a mother and baby or parent and child project. But Kate is like, as you said, eyes on the prize, scarcity mindset, I'm not sharing. So I'm going to keep what? Working on projects where I talk about the importance of mental health in pregnant women. And then I'm just going to sit back and watch my sister-in-law get destroyed in the press. There's no bigger picture at play here for any of the royals. 
And it's obviously been that way for decades. But what they fail to do is catch up with social media, which means that you cannot only have the myopic view anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think if I think about the biggest loser from this season of The Crown, that has to be Prince Charles. Everybody is like, they need to skip him. He cannot be king. I don't think anyone has done as much damage as Prince Charles. I'd say William's delighted. (laughs) Because William doesn't want to repeat of what he's seen play out with his own dad. William wants to be king when he is still young enough to enjoy being king. He wants a Felipe Leticia situation like over in Spain, where Felipe's dad was like, you know what? Peace out. I'm going to chill. I want my young, attractive son and his young, attractive wife and their young, attractive children to be the face of the Spanish royal family. Yeah, but that's not going to happen here because I just don't think... I mean, Queen Elizabeth is quite strong. I think she's still got another 10 years. Mm Mm-hmm. At a minimum. I agree. What I thought was funny, and I'm, I feel like I'm only extrapolating on this now when we're talking, but when they did the... Uh, firstly, I was delighted that they did a throwback to Claire Foy in South Africa because I was like, oh, absolutely loved her. She was so good. But when she was giving the speech where she was like, for the rest of my life, whether it be long or short, and I think the issue that we have here is that Elizabeth really thinks that we're holding her to that. And that I'm like, well, she absolutely can't abdicate now because she said back in 1950, whatever, that for the rest of her life, be it long or short, she was going to serve us. And I'm like, no, I I honestly wouldn't mind. I think she believes in the hereditary principle and she does not believe in abdicating. And I think she's traumatised because... It was an abdication that led her to be queen in the first place. And she's just not about that abdication life. That's it. But to go back to the the analogy of looking at the royal family as a business, you've got to know when you can no longer serve the business. If you look at the House of Windsor as a portfolio, Mm -hmm. Queen Elizabeth is, in my opinion, the highest valued stock that they have got right now in that portfolio you've got prince charles who is awful and trash Mm -hmm. you've got prince william who people are neutral about but he's not a superstar he's not doing anything he's not doing anything about him snip snip gone he's just cheating around with his girlfriend in norfolk and going Mm -hmm. bald and really not continuing his mother's legacy in any way and then you've got prince andrew who's a paedophile is stagnating (laughs) who's paedophile and then you've got um prince edward i don't know where he's at so when we think about a queen queen elizabeth embodies all of that and i think that she's the best that they've got for right now even though she's at home probably having a nap i just think that she's really the best that they have got right now i agree but that's because they keep selling off the best assets yeah. And what you should have done was kept Meghan and Harry because they're your innovation arm. Yeah. And you can dislike Meghan if you want, and you can dislike Harry, or you can be of the mentality, well, oh, she ruined him or she dragged him across to LA or whatever. But in pure bottom line financial terms, nothing that Kate, William, Charles, Camilla, Anne, Edward, Andrew, particularly Andrew, any of them are doing is 
generating the next you know there's nothing there's nothing nascent here they're not looking at the market and thinking hey here's how we can expand here's how we can do this and there's been a study done on this where when we talk about royal patrons of charities and I mentioned Princess Diana and that she was on the ground and that she was doing the work this showing up to unveil a plaque or cut a ribbon or whatever a study has been done on it to see what financial impact having a royal patron has on a charity and the answer is none there is really there is absolutely no financial benefit to an organization in having a royal patron particularly when all the royal patron does is maybe once a year show up to this charity and as I said cut a ribbon what about the princess trust though they seem to. Trust is different, right? So you've got a couple of outliers. Again, to use the portfolio analogy, you've got a couple of outliers. Duke of Edinburgh, a great long-standing initiative. Prince's Trust, another great long-standing initiative. Centibale Invictus, organizations set up by the royals, which they are more invested in because it directly relates to their legacy. Four of, at least four of William and Kate's charities that they are patrons of in the last three years have closed down due to lack of funding. Wow. Mm. Phoebe came with the receipts. Honestly, honestly. Whoa. Wow. Receipts, receipts, receipts. Obviously the Duke of Edinburgh, I did the Duke of Edinburgh because I was a cadet and I think great initiative and the Prince's Trust, amazing charity again. But that's interesting that outside of the few outliers, having a royal patron is not adding any value. One thing, so I did post this on Instagram. So that episode, the episode for me, that was just a sad, not Diana related episode was when they showed the Queen's cousins (gasps) in a home. I don't know what type of home you would call it for people with learning disabilities. I guess, yeah, I guess for that time, it was probably just referred to as an institution. Yeah, so that was really sad. And again, another win for the crown because they basically used actresses that Mm -hmm. have learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it was handled with care. I agree. This was something I had never heard of. Never, never. And I'm interested enough that like you would think that I might have done, might have come across it. Nothing about that made the royal family look good. And what I thought was, you know, kind of, bittersweet almost was that the reason that that storyline got introduced was that you had this whole issue of Margaret struggling with depression and the fact that obviously I know that again I know it's not necessarily 100% true to life but the fact that something like depression or anxiety or mental health issue was being grouped in with the kind of learning disabilities of these cousins you know, that that's how Margaret ended up finding out about it. Oh, we do know about your cousins. That's not the same thing. What? Yeah, but I think they were just trying to link it to... Totally. Yeah, to the royal family in some way. But I do think that that was probably quite representative of attitudes at the time. And it really shows how... I don't want to, I'm sure that some of the people listening will be like, all right, we get it. It's a business, but it really does show the myopia because when you think about, you know, firstly, having a member of your family have a learning disability or a developmental disability is not something to be ashamed of. 
And the idea that there are families around the world, certainly around the the Commonwealth, and as the Queen Mother mentioned in that episode, she was marrying a king emperor, right? Because at the time, he would have still been emperor of India. So you've got a situation where it was a king emperor, as if there aren't families all over the Commonwealth, all over the world, who have a family member with a developmental disability, and to have been seen and recognized in that way by the royal family. Not that it's a like-for-like comparison, but in the way that Diana spoke about postpartum depression and in the way that Meghan Markle spoke about miscarriage, because you need to talk about those things. You do, but then it's also, it shows you the shift in culture, because if you believe in the hereditary principle, then that means that you are superior, Mm. like you're super, you're not common, you're not, you don't have learning disability. What are you talking about? So back then, I could see why it's something that you're not shouting about. But the fact that they would be put in an institution, like couldn't they have had their own palace in Scotland and be taken care of? Yeah, absolutely. Also, the fact that their death was lied about. I'm sorry. Do you know, those details make it so that none of these decisions were being made because it's like, oh, listen, it's better for them this way you are hiding them because you think of them as a a dirty little secret. You're going to lie about whether or not they're even still alive. It's interesting when you talk about the hereditary principle. Queen Elizabeth believes that she was chosen by God to rule. She became queen through a series of circumstances where her uncle abdicated, threw her father into the position, and for all intents and purposes, the stress of that killed him. So where does that fit with your idea of hereditary principle? Is everything that's happened since you stopping Charles from marrying Camilla, Diana dying, Charles marrying Camilla anyway? Is there any point at which you think, "Mm, maybe it is possible that even though I have been handpicked by God, I am not above making wrong choices? I think what we have all learned from the crown is that irrespective of your position, in society, you can make really, 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 really bad choices. And I think overall, Queen Elizabeth came off well, overall. Mm, I, do you know what? I do think you're right. But there was one bit that has really sat with me. And again, it's not necessarily verbatim, but it's when she sits down with Charles and... Diana and asks them if either of them are interested in in continuing the the marriage and continuing the relationship and when Diana says I am I'd like to make this work she says then why have you been breaking your vows and again I know it's a representation of the times but I did just think are you really going to sit across from me in this room and talk to me about making my vows when you know that your son is having an affair with someone who lives 15 minutes down the road from us The Queen definitely could have handled the situation with Princess Diana a lot better because she was crying out for help. Mm -hmm. And so the only reason I say overall she came off quite well is because everybody was so erratic in the season. Princess Anne had her own depression. Margaret, her own depression. Prince Charles acting crazy. Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth just came across as pretty consistent. Right. And I think that consistency made her come across okay overall. But what someone said to me that I found hilarious is that, you know, they said that the Queen was nicer 
to the guy that broke into her bedroom than she is to her own children. 100%. 100%. As a quick aside, the guy who's played Prince Philip for the past two seasons, Tobias Menzies, I love him. I love him. My sister messaged me. She was like, is it weird that I think that Prince Philip is kind of cute? (laughs) I don't know anything about that guy. I thought he was excellent. I think I've seen him in other things before, but this is probably the only thing I've watched in depth with him in. Mm -hmm. But he's wicked. Like he has absolutely nailed it. Give Tobias the awards. Give Josh O'Connor all the awards. Okay, so here's my question. Do you think that they will get... Perhaps internationally they will, but do you think that they are going to get any awards from the BAFTAs this year, considering that Prince William is head of the BAFTA committee? I think it would make sense for the Crown to win something because the Crown absolutely smashed it. One thing in the Crown for me that was a bit like weird or a bit interesting was the whole like Margaret Thatcher Margaret Thatcher was just nuts. Beginning <laughs> to end. No particular bit. You were just like the whole thing. Well, I mean, oh, you know, me being the left-leaning person that I am, I'm not a fan of Margaret mm-hmm. Thatcher. But there were a few things about her that I found discussion-worthy. I find it so interesting when you have women in positions of power, but they feel that women don't have the temperament to lead. I could scream hearing you say that because 100%. I found it so jarring throughout the whole season, watching her get home and then start cooking dinner. Awful. I was so traumatised seeing her making dinner for her cabinet ministers. Same. When she was making kedgeri and she was going, apologies for the eggs, gentlemen, if you don't get out of that kitchen, it was absolutely bonkers. What what was it as well when they went up to Balmoral? I know that obviously, guys, it's hyperbolic. I know that not all of these necessarily happened, but they are representative of who she was and what she believed. Her career stopped at the front door and she's ironing her husband's shirts. When someone tried to iron her shirt, his shirt for her and she said, get off that. That's my job. Yeah. She was the, the first female prime minister. But you've got a situation where that anti-feminist that anti-women rhetoric that deep-rooted internalized misogyny has ensured that there hasn't been a female prime minister since because that's gone so deep that attitude is so permissive now like if you've got someone within the club saying you know listen I'm a woman and I don't trust other women It means that everyone's allowed to say it now because a woman said it. And what got brought up a lot throughout the series, particularly or specifically in the interactions between the Queen and Thatcher, is that you see how deeply the class issue is entrenched in the UK. The fact that Maggie didn't know what shoes to wear, what to dress, what time to show up, Mm -hmm. that already highlighted it. But then when Princess Margaret comes into the room and then tells her off, you know, mm-hmm. and it, that is such a perfect example of the class system in this country. You can be self-made. You can be a billionaire. No one cares if you don't have the pedigree. Totally. And what Thatcher did not have, she had no pedigree. No pedigree. And also, I think it's interesting because what she also did was she created the middle class in the UK in a very serious way. And so she despite her lack of pedigree, really created the system in which we live now, where Britain has no real industry on which it can rely. 
and where the middle class, you know, thrived under her rule. So she proliferated, I think, a lot of what she hated, because now you do have the solidification of these social strata that she had done so much to subvert by getting a place at Oxford, by becoming the first female leader of the Tory party. Mm -hmm. But speaking about Margaret Thatcher, it did remind me of something. So where I think the Queen had redeeming qualities is when they were discussing the whole sanctions against South Africa. And obviously, I don't know how much of that is true and sort of how things went down. But the fact that the Queen was willing to entertain the UK supporting sanctions against South Africa as a stand against the apartheid regime was really, really powerful. As a stateswoman, the Queen is impeachable actually. Mm. It's just as a mum and as a family person, she just doesn't have the skill set. As a businesswoman or as the vice president of this company, CEO, we don't need her to be a good mother or a good spouse even or a good sister or a good aunt or whatever the case. We need her to be a good employer. And my issue is that I don't know that she has been a good employer in perhaps the last 10 years because the standard oh more than that more than that but particularly in the last when I say the last 10 years I mean that's when with the the rise of social media that's when it's become unforgivable you you'd think maybe 10 years ago where people were if you were really interested in the news you'd have sky news on my grandma had sky news on 24 hours a day right but otherwise you'd probably catch the news at the top of the hour on the radio or you'd watch it in the evening. We are all on our phones constantly. We're on the internet constantly. Now it's become really obvious that the game plan needs updating. Mm. I would say 20 years because when you think about Princess Diana, that was the beginning of like Celebrity, OK Magazine, Hello Magazine, and everyone had their magazines and that was a time to really rethink the plan. Mm. And now I guess the question is, because things have been so poorly mismanaged, we don't know what the mindset of Prince William's children will Mm be. So things have been so poorly mismanaged, it'll be interesting to see how things play out in the future. But ultimately, The Crown absolutely smashed it. I think best thing on Netflix right now. And it was funny because last season, it was the first time that The Crown wasn't in Netflix's top 10. Yeah, understandably, because as you said yourself, it was a dry season. They needed meat. Yeah, exactly. So looking forward to the next season, like I said, give Josh O'Connor, who played Prince Charles, all the awards. So good. What happened at the BAFTAs, I think like that will kind of show us where the, the temperament of the royal family is on this. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, I really think that what we saw in The Crown was definitely dramatic, but I think so much has gone on behind. Like, I think it was so much worse that I think they're sitting back saying, oh, I thought it would be worse. Mm-hmm. The sanitised version came out. <laughs> yeah. I think they're like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Obviously, as a quick plug, Juliet and I are available for consultancy work to the royal family if anyone's if anyone's got any hookups that they want to path our way. But yes, I think that what will happen, in fact, is that Peter Morgan in seasons five and six, because I believe it's ending at the end of season six, will be a lot nicer next season. 
So he's generated all of the headlines. He's got everyone whipped up into a frenzy. We'll have season five. And what you'll then have, dependent on, I'm not sure when Diana's death will be covered, whether it'll be five or six, but what you'll have is the rehabilitation story of Charles and how he did his best as the father of two young boys to really be there for them. It won't be good. Bring us the juice, right? More receipts. That's what I want to see for season five for sure. Well, I will be watching a couple of the the documentaries that you said are available on Netflix. I will say for anybody else who is deep in the deep in the source right now of season four, there was a podcast I listened to during the week who did an arc on Diana and it's called You're Wrong About. And basically what they do is dispel kind of urban legends. Diana was just about the myth of her, Charles and her death. I'm a huge conspiracy theorist, so it was a bit kind of jarring for me to listen and be like, what do you mean I'm wrong about that? But what really shook me to my core, and I'll be interested to know whether or not you knew this, when Diana died and Charles flew to Paris to bring her body back, and obviously everyone is very familiar with the images of Diana's funeral and Philip and Harry and William and Earl Spencer and Prince Charles walking behind the hearse throughout London. Originally, that was supposed to be Earl Spencer, Prince Philip and Prince Charles. But Prince Charles knew how everyone felt about him and was worried that he would be booed by passers-by. So got Prince Philip to convince William and Harry to walk alongside him because he felt that the public would be less likely to shout at him if Diana's sons were there. So I believe that because I watched an interview of the Earl of Spencer, like Mm -hmm. some American like interview, and he was doing like a tour of the property and then talking about, you know, his memories of his sister. And he speaks so affectionately of his nephews. And he said that he had tried to prevent Prince William and Prince Harry from having to walk for miles behind their mother's coffin he said Prince Harry was such a small thing at the time how traumatizing that he had to escort his mother's coffin through the streets of London and so you saying that I absolutely believe that Prince Charles who is trash Mm -hmm. used his sons to shield him from potential booing and you know all of that from the public because Trust me, I believe, and we're now 20 years ahead. Mm -hmm. I do believe that people would have started throwing things at him. Oh, I totally. And it really kind of caused me to reframe how I had thought about him up until now. I kind of thought, genial guy, like, anyway, I was shook. I was shook. Mm -hmm. And I want to know from our listeners, who of you knew that? And how does that fact make you feel about Charles moving forward? Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Crown, guys. As you can see, this has had such a deep impact (laughs) on me and Phoebe that we decided to make a whole episode dedicated to The Crown. If we've missed anything, let us know. If you've got any thoughts on anything that we have said, reach out to us. You can find us at Jules Phoebe on Instagram. And um, thank you so much for listening. Please share the podcast with a friend. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.